Open your Bibles to Psalm 35. Psalm 35 is where we're going to be this morning. So we've been continuing through our summer in the Psalms, which we will end up going all the way through Psalm 40 before we begin 1 Samuel in the fall. So Psalm 35 is where we're going to be this morning. The best one-word description for the goal of the Christian life is cruciform. I know that's not a word you expected me to say. For the goal of the Christian life. Cruciform. You might be thinking to yourself, what does that even mean? The word, very simply put, means the shape of the cross. That's what it means. Cruciform. Form of the cross. The shape of the cross. But the real meaning of the word cruciform, that concept is that the Christian, and that as Christians, we're to live our lives in such a way that they mimic Jesus' own life. So the life that we live is patterned after the life that Christ lived while He was here. This is where the concept gets really difficult because Jesus' life, as I'm sure you can all attest, was not one of ease. It was not one of health, wealth, and prosperity. But the eternal Son of God had nowhere to lay His head. He lived in poverty. And although He did have a band of followers that were faithful to Him for the most part, and at times, there were even times where His message was favorable to the crowds around Him so that people were gathering around Him, on the whole, He was hated, He was betrayed, he was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was tried unjustly, and eventually he was crucified. So the call to a cruciform life is one that sees our lives patterned after that. That's where it gets really difficult for us, because if Jesus tells us, take up your cross, that leads to a big gulp, right? Jesus says this most famously in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 25, where he defines discipleship for us. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The shape that following Jesus takes in this world is the shape of suffering. In our psalm this morning, David, per our usual arrangement, has enemies around him. And he's praying for deliverance from these adversaries. So let's read Psalm 35. It's a rather lengthy one, so bear with me. Of David, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause... 
They hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. The poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things I do not know, that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one laments for his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches, whom I do not know, tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me, and they say, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it! You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha! Our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see the word in front of us. and So often we don't know what to do with it. So I pray you would give us help as we seek to understand it, as we seek to apply it in some way. Open our minds and our hearts that we may hear, we may see, understand, receive, and apply the word that you have in front of us this morning. Preach through me. Preach a better sermon than I ever could possibly preach. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 35 is an imprecatory psalm. You know this word, imprecatory? It's really simple. It means calling down a curse, putting a curse on someone. David, in this psalm, and many other psalms like it, is calling down a curse on someone. Or in this case, many someones, apparently. So he's praying that God would strike someone with a curse, essentially. Now, it's often difficult as we read psalms like Psalm 35, imprecatory psalms, 
to come to it as New Testament Christians and read Psalms like this, because as I said last week, we often, when we read the Psalms, we want to treat it like our prayers to God, that I would pray this very same thing. And since this is an ancient hymnal, if I'm standing over the dishes, I can sing, It is well, can't I? Can't I at any time sing, It is well with my soul, as I know so many of you have, or many other hymns that might be your favorite from time to time? Of course we can. Well, the Psalms are an ancient hymnal, so can I just read the Psalms and kind of recite them like they're written down here? When I read David calling on God to run his enemies through with a javelin and take up a shield, can I translate that to the enemies that I might see around me and pray that same thing? Lord, run them through. I'm sure that makes us all uncomfortable a little bit. As I talked about last week, it's important when we read the Old Testament, and especially the Psalms, that we do so with gospel glasses on. And I'm going to continue to use that phrase and continue to teach what it means because we're going to be going into 1 Samuel in the fall and it's going to be really important that we begin to understand what's happening there in 1 Samuel and reading it intentionally with gospel glasses on. And what that means is we know how the story ends. We know how it all unfolds. We know the truth. It's revealed to us in the New Testament. It's revealed to us in God's Word. So we, when we reread the story, when we go back to the beginning, we have to reread it with that story in mind that we know in the end, how it ends. Like any good book, when you read it the second or the third time, you're going to pick up a whole host of things that you've never seen before. You're going to see things that, you, that stand out to you that might have seemed like ancillary details when you first went past them, but now stick out even more because the way the story ended. Well, we're going to do that very similar thing as we keep gospel glasses on as we read the Psalms. But because we have our gospel glasses on, here are several things that we know, or a couple of things that we know. First, we know that David is a type of Messiah. He is a type of Messiah, or you might even say a prototype of the Messiah to come. All right. Remember that Messiah really just means anointed one. And David is anointed as king over God's kingdom. So he is the anointed one over God's kingdom. He qualifies as a type of Messiah to come. And further, he's God's chosen king. Remember, the people demanded to have Saul, which we'll read about in 1 Samuel. They demanded to have Saul as king. But God later then rejects Saul and tells Samuel to appoint the king that that God has put forward, who is David. And so Samuel appoints David as king and anoints him as king while Saul is still living. So David is a type of Messiah because he's not only king over God's kingdom, but he's God's chosen king over his kingdom. But second, David is also an initial taste of God's salvation to the people of Israel. He, he's, a, he's a foretaste, if you will, of God's salvation to people. In 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, God makes a promise to David. And really the whole line up through Jesus is, is built on the foundation of this promise that He gives to David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that, that promise ends up leading to Matthew 1, Christ, coming from his father David. So I know it's really very difficult, I think, oftentimes for us to wrap our minds around this reality because we, we don't really think of real people and historical people as foreshadowing people to come in the future. We don't think of it that way. That's normally something we see in literature, in books. We see one character foreshadowing another character to come. But the Bible we're reading has God as its author. And human history has God as its author. We are the characters in God's dramatic history, right? So one character, David, is foreshadowing the kind of Christ to come. David's the first in a long line of kings, and the last of which will bring real, lasting, eternal salvation to the people of Israel. And his throne, Christ's throne, will last forever. In the meantime, David's going to bring many things to people Israel in a small way that eventually his great-great-grandson Jesus would bring finally. So all of that is to say that when we read the psalm, especially a psalm of David, we do so knowing that it's going to draw our minds eventually to Jesus. And that's our goal, is to get our minds effectively on how does Jesus fulfill this psalm that David is writing about in a way that David never could. So in the New Testament then, these psalms are going to take on much fuller meaning as we get to the person of Jesus. So this morning we're going to look relatively quickly at each section of this psalm. I know it's a long psalm, but we're going to look at each section of this psalm. And first we're going to ask the question, what does it say? And when we ask that question, what does it say? We're really just trying to go through the psalm and make sure we understand how each section is broken down. But then we want to ask, what does it mean? And there we start to put on our gospel glasses and we start to really look at what does this actually mean to a New Testament audience? Why did God put this psalm in the Bible for me? Why did He expect me to read this? So translate it like this. When I'm sitting down on my couch and I open up my Bible and read Psalm 35, what am I supposed to do with it? What am I, when I see David calling a curse on his enemies, what am I, on my couch, supposed to do with that there? What does it actually mean? And then finally, we have to ask, why does it matter? So there we'll make sure we put on our gospel glasses and apply it to where we actually live today, seeing that this psalm is actually applicable in all of its glory to us. So first, what does it say? In this first section... We see here that, God, that David is calling on God the warrior. That David is calling on God the warrior. And this is looking at verses 1 to 10. Now sometimes it's difficult to relate to where David is coming from. For one, he's the king. For two, he's God's anoint, uh, God has anointed him himself. And for three, all of the nations around David tend to be particularly angry at him all the time. That's not a problem that you and I really face on a daily basis. That as we look around us, Iran's not breathing down our neck. You know, maybe our government, maybe those kinds of things, but it's not really at us that they're angry, or not really at me. 
And so it's difficult for me to think in terms of the way David is spelling things out here with all these enemies all around him. He's the target of lots of opposition. When you look at verse 7, what we do know about this opposition is that it's unprovoked. Look at what David says there in verse 7. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Now, lines like this are really important for us to kind of draw out of the context that it's in because it gives us the occasion for the psalm. The occasion basically tells us the reason, the circumstances of life that were going on in the the author's life that gave reason for the psalm to be written. And that helps us because it really gives us an idea of the point of the psalm. It tells us where the psalm is really headed. Who is the target of this psalm? And the point that he's making. Now, if you're with us on the last Monday of the month in Feast, we're going through the book of John, and that's all we're trying to do. Take a passage at lunchtime and just get to the point. What is John's point in the whole, uh, the whole thing? That's what we're doing here is really trying to see what is he aiming at. And it's clear he's crying out because he, he, wasn't, he didn't do anything. They have hit a trap for him, and he's calling on God to respond because I didn't do anything to deserve this. Look at what he says in verse 1. He's calling on the Lord to fight. He says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Look again at verse 8. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. So I've said this is an imprecatory psalm where David is calling down a curse on his enemies. And the form that this curse takes is David praying that God himself would strike them down in one way or another. And the leader of the fight is none other than who? He's calling on the angel of the Lord to do the fighting. Lord, send the angel of the Lord and pursue them and strike them down. Let their feet slip and let the angel of the Lord get them. Remember, we saw the angel of the Lord last week in Psalm 34, who encamps around those who fear the Lord and delivers them. Remember that I said that the angel of the Lord is different from an angel of the Lord. So different, in fact, it's, it's hard to even really qualify them as angels, because it's, that's not exactly the way we should think of it. The, the angel of the Lord is the commander of the Lord's armies in Joshua 5, 14. The angel of the Lord is the one that appears to Moses in the burning bush and tells him, Take off your sandals, for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. The angel of the Lord responds quite differently to people's worship than an angel of the Lord. In one battle, the the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian troops, and that happens in 2 Kings 19.35. And that night, the, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 
the angel of the Lord is a bad dude. All right? Not to be messed with. The angel of the Lord is regularly used throughout the Old Testament as a term for God himself come down to earth to interface with mankind. David asks for the Lord to be his warrior, for the angel of the Lord to pursue them and to strike them. And as a result, he will rejoice in the salvation that God has provided. But then next, in the next section, we see that it's a cry. So it goes from a plea for God, the warrior to respond, to now a cry of one wrongly accused. David explains a little bit further the situation that he's in. Look at verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. So perhaps we're finding out a little bit more about this situation that David is in. Where in verse 7 we saw that they're, they're doing this without cause. And now we see that this attack was not so much physical, but verbal. This is an audible attack. They were accusing him of something that he didn't do. They're laying something before him that is not True, And the traps that they're trying to set for him are like traps of a prosecuting attorney trying to catch him in his story, making up lies. But that's not all we see. Look at verse 13. But, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. You know what this tells us? This gives us the indication that the people that he's talking about, that the verbal attacks are coming from people within the nation of Israel, not outside. These are people within. I treated them like brothers when they were sick. I mourned for them. And, and this is how they repay me? Is what he's, what he's saying? So these are probably people within his own tribe. People that may have been very close friends to him. Now the reason this is important is because the enemies in the Psalms are not, in this Psalm are not foreign enemies. They're enemies within what David would consider the family. David doesn't seem to be praying that the Philistines would fall into a trap. There is that in other Psalms. That's not what we're seeing here. He's not praying against the Philistines. He's praying against those inside the nation of Israel that the Lord would send the angel of the Lord and strike them down, ensnare them, flip their trap on themselves. He's not even really talking about physical violence that they're inflicting on him. They're, they're seeking to harm him with. Look at verse 16. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. They're slanderous, they're gossips, they're false witnesses, they spread rumors, and they malign his intentions. But make no mistake about it, when you're the one receiving it, it's the epitome of destruction. It's interesting that in nearly every epistle that we get in the New Testament, we saw this this morning in Second Peter, or First and Second Peter, we've been seeing it. That in nearly every epistle, it speaks to the relationship of the people 
inside the church body and the kind of relationship they're to have with one another. Paul, Peter, James, John, even Jesus, they all preach about gossip, slander, backbiting, infighting within the church as uncharacteristic of the people of God. Plain and simple. You, you want to see the fruit of the Spirit's work? It's when those things are being repented of and pushed to the margins. You want to see a church torn apart? It's when those things run rampant and are unrestrained. They're uncharacteristic of the people of God. It's not a product of what the Spirit of God produces in and through His people, yet so much of it is tolerated in our congregations. And it tears us apart. The trouble with this is that these sins are often the ones that actually destroy the church. I heard a pastor once say that I've never seen a church torn apart by a moral failure from its leadership. But I've seen ton of them, a ton of them torn apart by gossip. Now, that's anecdotal. I get, I understand. Perhaps there's one or two that have been torn apart by moral failure. I'm sure there are. But I think maybe you have felt like David does. Maybe you can relate after all to where David is at. He's in utter agony at the way his very friends, people that he liked, people that were part of the family, are speaking maliciously about him. Maybe you've had at some point that kind of enemy. Maybe it's been in the workplace, or maybe it's been in your family, or maybe it's even been in your church. Maybe there's been a time or two where you've read a psalm like this and you've considered to yourself, maybe I could pray one such prayer on my couch. Lord, take them out. Having already called on God the warrior and described his agony, David is now calling on God the judge. Look at verse 19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me, and they say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who rejoice in my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. It's vindication that he's calling for. It's justice that he's calling for. He wants the Lord to judge rightly. How long will you sit there and be silent? Move, do something, judge on my behalf. The word he uses there in verse 23 and 24 that the ESV translates there, vindicate or vindication, is, speaks of judgment. He's saying, God alone, you can overturn this case that they have against me. Flip it against the prosecution. There are places where the accuser, and throughout this passage, like in verse 25, you see there where they say, aha, our heart's desire. The aha there is like an expression of joy. It's like laughter that they finally got him pinned against the wall. Haha, we've done it. 
David wants the holy and righteous judge to overturn their laughter and turn it against them. And in verse 26, to have them put to shame instead. So as we walk through the psalm, it's relatively straightforward. There's nothing earth-shattering about it. You pretty much get that. David is calling down a curse on the people around him, people within his own family. What does that mean? What am I supposed to do with it in a New Testament setting? Imagine you're sitting there on your couch. You're reading Psalm 35 for your morning devotion. And you close your Bible to pray. And perhaps you've read Donald Whitney's Praying the Bible. You ever heard of this book? It's a, it's a really helpful book, but it, it encourages you basically as you read through a passage of Scripture to close your Bible and then identify things within that passage that you've seen. So things that might convict you of sin, confess those sins. Things that it might encourage you to, to shout for joy, make those your, your proclamation of joy that morning. Uh, is there, are there things to be thankful for that the passage has brought up? Bring up things of thanksgiving. So you've read that book. You're well-versed in it. You've practiced it in all your New Testament epistles. And now you've read a David's imprecatory psalm in 35. And so you close your Bible and you start to think. And let's say you've picked up on the fact that he is cursing people. That he is cursing people who are maliciously attacking him without cause. And maybe, just maybe, in your past or maybe in your present, you're the subject of gossip. From someone else. Maybe you're the subject of slander from someone. Maybe you are in a bit of a tiff with one of your, your friends. What does your prayer sound like on that couch? Let's be honest. Lord, contend with those who contend with me. Amen. I'm right there with David. Lord, take hold of shield and buckler. Javelin's a little bit strong. I might not want that just yet. But give me a week, okay? I might be there next week. But right now, shield and buckler should be fine. Okay? Take up all those things and rise for my help. Go to war with these people. Oh, oh, I know. Send the angel of the Lord after them. He'll listen to him. Moses had to take off his shoes after all. I mean, that would really help. But it helps us to have gospel glasses on when we look at this passage with the gospel in mind. And if you do, you'll realize a couple of things. First of all, you're not David. I know, that's a shocker. But you got to think, okay, I'm not David. David served a very special purpose in God's grand design, and that was as king of his kingdom. And as such, those who are fighting against David are actually fighting against God's established king and against God's established line, which would ultimately culminate in Jesus. So anybody that's coming to take David's life is ultimately coming to take Jesus' life. So first of all, I'm not David. In the way that, G that David is praying this, he has a very special purpose. So it's inappropriate for me in all times and all places to just slide my name right there into the beginning of the psalm and it says, of Michael, at the top. It's inappropriate for me to do that and pray in the exact same way at all times that David prays. And so after we use a little bit of caution, realizing we're not David, perhaps we'll also notice that the New Testament actually does give us some help from time to time in figuring out how to interpret these psalms. 
And so that's what I'm doing, is I'm looking at this and going, did the New Testament ever make a comment on this psalm? Did any of the expositors of the New Testament ever say anything about Psalm 35? And lo and behold, wouldn't you believe that right there in the New Testament, someone makes a comment about Psalm 35, verse 19. And in verse 19, David is calling on God the judge to intercede, to stop his enemies, and he says, from winking their eyes, who hate me without cause, he says. You see that there in 19? They hate me without cause. Wouldn't it, isn't it interesting that in the New Testament, in the book of John, Jesus himself actually cites this psalm. John 15, 23 to 25. This is what he says. Listen closely. You might even want to turn there if you can. Since our screen is down right now, we're all messed up technologically. So we'll be back up and running in a month or two, so just bear with us. But for now, go ahead and turn there. John 15, 23 to 25. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they, they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without Who's the me Jesus is saying there? Jesus. Now, I know when you read Psalm 35, verse 19, you were not thinking to yourself, that's a prophecy that's to come through and true in the future. Don't we often think of prophecy as, thus saith the Lord, in ten years, da 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 Something about the future, right? That's how we often think of prophecy. No, no, no. New Testament authors say, no, Jesus is fulfilling everything in the Old Testament. Everything that anybody ever walked through, Jesus is fulfilling. He's giving it its ultimate meaning. So he's, Jesus says, the me in there, they hated me without cause, has to be fulfilled. And how is it fulfilled? It's fulfilled by the people who have seen him and reject him, hating him without cause. That's how it's fulfilled. So Jesus is saying that this psalm is actually his psalm. It, it's not just of David. It's of Jesus. This psalm belongs to him. Its final and ultimate meaning is about his life. David is foreshadowing Christ. The enemies of David are foreshadowing the enemies of Jesus. David was hated without cause. But remember, David was also sinful. So at the end of the day, someone hating him without cause is one sinner hating another sinner. Okay. But for Jesus, in Jesus' case, they really hated him without cause because he had no sin for them to hate him. They really hated him without cause. So it's not me that slides into the shoes of David there in Psalm 35 and prays this prayer. It's Jesus. Now, firmly affixing our gospel glasses on, I'm reminded that far from playing the role of David as the enemy, or as the, as the king here, I'm actually the enemy. Remember, 
If I have my gospel glasses on, what I have to remember, if this is Jesus we're talking about, who are the enemies of God? Everyone. Humanity. And what I'm reminded of is that, in fact, I was the enemy that Jesus went to the cross for. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 5, 8 to 11, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were enemies of God and were reconciled by the cross. So when I look at this psalm that's sitting here in front of me, through the lenses of the gospel, now I'm seeing that Jesus is the only one that can play the part of the true and better David. Not me. It's, it's Jesus that can play that, that role. I am the role of the enemy. Jesus is the righteous one. I'm not the righteous one. Now, remember then, if God answers the prayers of David, this imprecatory psalm, if He answers the prayers of David's curse, the enemies of God's kingdom are getting the axe, Right? Well, where does that leave us? I'm chief among them. I'm the recipient of the axe if David's prayers are answered. But something actually transpired on the cross 2,000 years ago. So an event actually took place 2,000 years ago which reversed my fortunes. And if you're in Christ, if you're a disciple of Christ, if you're a follower of Him, it reversed yours too. There, Jesus, as Paul says, bore the hatred of the enemies even to death. And rather than call down the curses of God upon all those that had crucified Him to the tree, He instead prayed, Father, forgive them. And then He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and breathed his last. He atoned for my sin by bearing the punishment that I deserved. So no longer does he call me an enemy, but he calls me a friend. So this psalm is fulfilled by Jesus, whom they hated, even crucified without cause. It's fulfilled by him. So the rightful owner of all of God's curses, all of the imprecatory psalms, the rightful owner of those curses is Jesus, not me. I'm not called on now to curse, but what am I to do? To bless. What about those who persecute me, the enemies around me who persecute me unjustly? I'm to pray for those who persecute me. Interestingly, just before Jesus quotes this psalm as he's talking to his disciples. 
he actually encourages his disciples. Just before that, in a, just a couple of verses, he encourages his disciples. And this is what he says. John 15, verse 18. Now, what I read was 25. This is verse 18. He's telling his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So then we have to ask, well, why does that matter then? If this is Jesus' psalm, if Jesus is the fulfillment of that, why does it matter? Because it remind us, reminds us of two things. First, the world is natural enemies of Jesus. And all those who would follow after him are also enemies of the world. The world is a natural enemy of Jesus. It's a natural enemy of anyone who would follow after Jesus. The world will hate you as it hated him. So long as there is a church that is preaching sound doctrine and that is putting into practice what they preach in any culture, be it an American culture or be it anything that's become before or be it anything that comes after, any time there is a church actually preaching sound doctrine and living it out, it will increase in hostility toward the world. The world will increase its hostility towards the church, I should say. Without fail. So our role in this whole drama is not the one praying the curses down on our enemies. The main reason is because they're not our enemies. They're Jesus' enemies. It's not our curses to pray down. We don't have enemies. We're not afforded the luxury of enemies. There's not a person in this world who should be your enemy. Be it brother, sister, or member of the secular community. There's not a person who is our enemies. They're his enemies. Our role is to suffer as Jesus suffered. Our role is a cruciform life. It's to follow in lockstep with exactly what he did, which is, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He suffered unto death. So our role, if necessary, is to die at the hands of our persecutors as Jesus died at the hands of his. Our role is literally to take up our cross and follow if that is what is required of us. Our role is to trust our lives into the hands of the righteous judge as we face the attacks of the world, knowing that if they hate us, it's not because they hate us. It's because they hate him. They hate every law that he's ever put down. 
They hate every rule that he's ever given. They hate everything that he's ever said. And any time those things come out of your mouth, they want to kick, they want to fight, and they want to kill. But second, it reminds us that Jesus, as the rightful owner of the imprecatory psalms and commander of the armies of heaven, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, will one day respond as warrior and judge. So that prayer by David will actually one day be answered. It has already begun to be answered on the cross, where he there saved his children and he condemned his enemies, no doubt. But it will one day come to the full when Jesus returns as warrior and judge and answers the prayer of his great-great-grandfather David when he does. Where he will there make all of his enemies his footstool. He will descend at the sound of a trumpet and all those who ridiculed sound doctrine as being on the wrong side of history will find themselves on the wrong side of the future. And that's a dangerous place to be. But let's remember, were it not for Christ, those enemies who are on the wrong side of the future would be you and me. So as we walk through this world, it's important for us as we read this psalm to realize not only is it fulfilled in Christ, but were it not fulfilled in Christ, I would be the, the one receiving the answer to the prayer. I would be the one whom the curses was called down on. Yet for Christ, I am included. So it is with humility that we walk out into the world and preach the gospel that we preach. It's not, you, sinner, you're condemned going to hell, repent. It is, I was there with you. Were it not for Christ, I would be in hell. But God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which He loved us, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So it's with humility that we go out there. We're not praying imprecatory psalms. They're reminding us of what Christ has actually done for us in the cross. He's forgiven us and transferred us from the domain of darkness where we were enemies of God, transferred us into His kingdom where we're not enemies but friends. Not only are we friends, but we're invited to sit at His table as sons and daughters. He doesn't just invite us to call Him friend. But Father, what a place to be. But it is only because of Christ that we're there. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we see pattern unfolding before us in Scripture, that what we'll be reminded of is the life that we're called to live. A life of holiness. A life patterned after the example Christ set for us. A life that takes our cross and follows. Those might be verbal assaults. Those might be assaults at a distance. Those might be people that don't even know us attacking the very thing that we believe and hold dear and treasure, causing us sometimes to falter. 
They may be people that scoff at the very, go- the very nature of the gospel. They, people that do not believe that Jesus will ever return all the way to people that are putting us at the edge of a knife. We pray that we would follow after our leader, Christ, who gave his life willingly. We pray that we, like that, would follow after him. Serve his kingdom with everything that we've got. And should our life be required of us, be willing and ready to get it. In Jesus' name, amen.